Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Bearded Things. I'm one of your bearded hosts. My name is Chris, and I'm here with my buddy, Tyler. Tyler, hi. Hi. <laughs> hi, kids. How you doing, man? How's everything? Uh, everything is good. Um, I had a productive day yesterday. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and burn you out real quick. Um, <laughs> it was your birthday yesterday. It was my birthday Woo! yesterday, yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone that called and reached out. Uh, we had some and for those who didn't go screw yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rest of you are dead to me. Um, but no, it it, it was good. Uh, I celebrated the 14th anniversary of my 21st birthday, so that was a lot of fun. I'll let you guys do the math on that one. Yeah, that's like 47, I think. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Roughly, yeah, you know, you carry the two, divide by pi, something like that. Something I don't know. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Welcome to the middle of the 30s. Yeah, it's uh it's yeah. It's great. It's been a ride. Yeah. It starts to hurt very soon. Oh no, yeah, I'm well my like I always tell people chronologically, you know, mid thirties. Uh mentally I'm probably about twelve. Physically, I'm well over sixty. My body's just not having it anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that subs me up pretty well. Like you take a capsule summary of my my physical being it's right there so did you do anything fun anything exciting i played some board games hey board games are great yeah it was fun i mean it's it's you know ramadan so i can't really do much in terms of like going out and entertaining too much but um but yeah it was it was a lot of fun and then today i uh went to work and spent a lot of time helping the pharmacy because apparently mother's day means everyone needs their medications and their drugs because we were stupid busy yeah, that's how you deal with seeing your mom again after time without her. <laughs> makes so much sense. I saw a funny meme speaking of Mother's Day, which, by the way, happy Mother's Day to happy all the mothers that mothers are out there. Day. Yeah. Um, you are appreciated. Uh, but I saw a meme that someone someone posted and it said, uh, like, where are you guys taking your mom for, for dinner tonight? It's like me. Like, we have food at home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Take that, mom. <laughs> she knows where the kitchen is. Right. <laughs> I just mean because, like, realistically, in a traditional house, the mom's the one who gets down in the kitchen and knows all the good recipes. Exactly. Yeah, they know what they're doing in there. Like, you know, you put us in there, we're going to put chips and dips out and crack open a couple sodas, and there's your dinner. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we need mom to teach us how to cook. Hell, my mom just would send me to Wendy's. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that started my love affair with the Baconator. With the square hamburgers. They're delicious. I love them. I, I think that's what it is. I, just to kind of like dive a little too deep on my life. Uh, I think Wendy's just makes me happy because it reminds me of my childhood. It was directly, make, that, yeah. it was directly across the street and my mom could not cook to save anyone's life. <laughs> so she's like, you want something? Go to Wendy's. And that's, that's what got me through. And that's why I have this gorgeous figure you see before you today. <laughs> They don't see it yet. Next week, they will see it. Yes, they will. Uh, because next week, we will be interviewing each other as a completely separate segment than what we normally do. And uh, yeah, you get to get to know us a little bit more, more than you probably care to. But hey, yeah. it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be fun. You know, see us live and in color. Yeah. And if you want us to ask each other anything in particular, if there's something you just want to know about us, our, our taste preferences, suggestions, anything at all. This is a great time to send it in to, so we can uh, we can ask it. Yeah, when you're listening to this, when it comes out on Tuesday, you have about five days 
to get those questions in. Otherwise, you're gonna have to wait until the next time we do some kind of Q&A or, you know, never, ever. And you'll always be curious of what happened. And we will never talk about it. Ever. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about it, but it'll be great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if we can if get you ask, on. let's be honest, we will, we will share, overshare probably. Absolutely. That's kind of our thing. And uh, on that note, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it. If uh, you're listening on something that lets you vote or uh, give a rating for what you're listening to, we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and a little blurb about how much you love us. And if you hate us, just shoot us an email. We won't take it personal. (laughs) Just, you know, the algorithms, we got it. That's more constructive feedback. Yeah, we can deal with that personally. Totally. But yeah, we're just, you know, we're a small mom and pop little or pop and pop little podcast and we're just trying to make it in a big podcast world yeah so uh what are you going to be covering this week i am covering um the mary celeste very very nice and this week i am covering the death of paul mccartney oh okay because i mean it's it's complicated it's a whole thing should we should we just get started yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's jump into it. I think uh, I went first last time, so I believe you are up, right? Yes, you are correct, sir. Okay. Well, I told you about Strawberry Fields, you know, the place where nothing is real. Well, here's another place you can go where everything flows. Well, my bearded friends, that's in fact exactly where we're going to go. That was the opening lyrics to Glass Onion off the Beatles' self-titled album, famously nicknamed The White Album, released in 1968. And there's a lot to tackle in this episode. So let me just say, no, Paul McCartney is not dead. Probably. (laughs) Well, the man we know and love as Paul McCartney is alive, but what if he isn't who we think he is? If you're younger and don't know who the Beatles are, well, first, your adult figures in your life have horribly failed you. (laughs) The Beatles are arguably the most influential band that has ever existed. Funny fact, the Beatles were actually in a one-sided album war with another famous band at the same time called The Beach Boys. The Beatles heard their album Pet Sounds and felt a little jealous and a little threatened, so they immediately tried to make a better album, which led to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. What the Beatles didn't realize is that the lead singer and writer, uh, he was the one with a high voice, his name was Brian Wilson, was actually struggling with an undiagnosed mental illness and was having a mental breakdown that he was trying to self-medicate with psychoactive drugs like acid while he was making pet sounds. So good luck topping that. (laughs) Anyhow, they were so iconic, they couldn't even be heard over the screams at their concerts. So they thought it would be funny to play the songs wrong and make up lyrics at their shows. No one knew for years because you literally could not hear them. It wasn't until they did a show in Japan where the custom at the time was to be more reserved and quiet at concerts. They realized they forgot how to actually play live. It was a huge train wreck, so bad they quit touring altogether. Now, why did I tell you all that? I really think it's important to understand the grandness of the Beatles during the height of Beatlemania, which, if you haven't seen... Just YouTube Beatlemania, it's complete madness. They couldn't go anywhere without hordes of people chasing them and screaming. Girls would pass out at their shows, cry, scream at the top of their lungs. It was literal madness. Now for the legend. It really started in October of 1969. 
A local radio DJ on WKNR got a phone call from an anonymous caller who asked him to play the opening to Revolution 9 backwards on the air. When he did, he heard the words, Turn me on, dead man. He also played the end of Strawberry Fields backwards and heard, I buried Paul. From that point on, there was no turning back. The words spread like wildfire. According to Rolling Stone magazine, it meant one thing. It meant the Beatles were hiding a secret. Paul McCartney was killed in a car crash back in 1966, and the band replaced him with a lookalike imposter. The story goes that McCartney stormed out of a songwriting session with the Beatles while they were working on their album and, ironically, McCartney's masterpiece, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, got into his uh, fancy car, floored it, and was killed in a car crash. Some say he was even gruesomely beheaded or scalped during the crash. When the English authorities heard this, they panicked. They were afraid that a massive wave of suicides or riots would happen. So they did the most logical thing. They asked the Beatles to secretly replace Paul McCartney. McCartney was then replaced by a lookalike called either William Shears Campbell, apparently referenced as Billy Shears on Sgt. Pepper, or William Shepard, supposedly referenced in the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. As these rumors began circling, the Beatles tried to get ahead of the rumors by releasing this statement to their fan club. The title read, False Rumors! It would go on to say, The 7th January was very icy, with dangerous conditions on the M1 motorway, linking London with the Midlands. And towards the end of the day, a rumor swept London that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash on the M1. But of course, there was absolutely no truth in it at all. The Beatles' press officer found out when he telephoned St. John's Wood's home and was answered by Paul himself. Now, I just want to point out, this is exactly the type of article you would release if, in fact, you were trying to cover up the death and replacement of one of the most influential humans that ever lived. Billy Shears, or Billy Shepard, was a pretty close lookalike. They gave him some plastic surgery to get as close as they could. They taught him how to write like Paul, play left-handed like Paul, which we'll come back again shortly, and sing like Paul. The legend says that the guilt of this was way too much for the Beatles to keep hidden. So out of grief, they hid details in their album art and in the music itself. There are a lot of different legends around this, so I'm just going to go over the most common theories that date back to about the time all of this was starting. For instance, on Sgt. Pepper, the album cover has flowers which are arranged like Paul McCartney's left-handed bass. At the bottom of the image, the Hindu god Shiva, the destroyer, is pointing at Paul. Paul has a patch on his shoulder that says OPD, which is the English version of America's DOA, or Dead on Arrival. OPD means officially pronounced dead. There's also apparent references to the time and date of McCartney's alleged death. With the original pressing featuring a picture of the band with Harrison pointing towards the lyrics, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. So if you put a mirror down the center of the Sgt. Pepper bass drum, you will get the phrase 1-1-I-X-He-Die, which many interpret as 11-9-He-Die, a reference to the date of the accident. On the album Art of Magical Mystery Tour, which showed the word Beatles written in stars, which, if held up to a mirror and upside down, apparently gave you a mysterious telephone number. At the time, if you called it, it either called a morgue in London or someone would just pick up and speak really weird coded nonsense. There is absolutely no evidence for this, but it's still pretty creepy. 
when the iconic album Abbey Road was released, it only added to the lore. On the front cover, there's a Volkswagen Beetle with a license plate reading LMW28IF, which is believed to have meant Paul would have been 28 if, you know, if he didn't die. Another clue from the album is hidden in plain sight. The album cover itself is probably the most recognizable image of the Beatles ever. It's the one outside of the Abbey Road Studios where they're walking across a crosswalk, but the shot allegedly represents a funeral procession, with John Lennon dressed in all white at the front, acting as the priest, Ringo Starr next in a black suit acting as an undertaker, and then Paul McCartney being barefoot, as many of the corpses at the time would have been buried, and walking with his eyes closed, holding a cigarette in his right hand. Again, Paul McCartney was a lefty, so if you were to smoke, he would hold it in his left hand. And closing the line, we have George Harrison dressed in denim symbolizing a gravedigger. There's another interesting, not-so-hidden clue in a song on that album where John sings, Here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. And in Scandinavian culture, a walrus allegedly symbolizes a corpse. And in Ringo's song, Don't Pass Me By, he apparently refers to the accident as well. He says, quote, I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. Now, you might say some of these things are a bit of a reach. And okay, I can give you that. Some of this does feel a little bit out there. But how about this? If you look at pictures of Paul around this time, the shape of his face seems to have slightly changed just a little bit. Oh, come on, Chris. People's features change all the time as they age. You're absolutely right. But according to forensic specialists, not particular areas like, say, the ears. McCartney's ears seem to have somehow changed shape. Even his chin has changed shape. And trying to get to the bottom of Rolling Stone reached out to Paul in 1974. Paul said, someone from the office rang me up and said, look, Paul, you're dead. And I said, oh, I don't agree with that. In the 1990s, he did a groundbreaking interview on a, one of the most prestigious shows of the time. It was on a show called Saturday Night Live. And on the show, there was a host by the name of Chris Farley who had a show called The Chris Farley Show. And here's just a kind of a, a little recap of the interview. Chris Farley bluntly asked him, quote, Remember when you died? Paul says, Yeah, I do. Chris asked, You didn't really die, did you? And then Paul says, No. No, I didn't. Which, if we're being honest here, would be something you would totally say if you're covering up a multi multiple decades old mystery. In my humble opinion, this is probably just rock and roll lore that will live on forever. Is there any truth to it? Well, my day-tripping friend, we'll find out down the long and winding road. And while my guitar gently weeps, I feel fine. This has been the weird, cryptic tale of the death of Paul McCartney. Very interesting, and I also like what you did there at the last couple lines. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, I remember hearing something about that, but it didn't click until like you were like talking about like the death of Paul McCartney. Like halfway through, I was like, isn't he still alive? I'm like, oh, shit. Like, 
It's the conspiracy theory. Yeah. So uh, a few years back, I got to go see Paul, air quotes, Paul mm. McCartney. <laughs> and it was a phenomenal show. And I will give Billy Shears his credit. He really does a great job covering Paul McCartney songs. Nice. That's good. Yeah. I'm not saying I believe the myth or, or the lore, but, mm. you know, it, it kind the cover up does make sense. Like, I, I don't think we have any celebrities alive today that have the same power yeah. as, like, the Beatles did at the height of Beatlemania. Mm -hmm. e even today. Like, I mean, they're still icons. They're, like, living icons. Yeah. And I, there's nothing to that caliber. There aren't political figures as powerful as the Beatles were. Yeah, I feel like there's people that can control a lot of, you know, like, you can control an audience, you can work an audience, but it's like, like you said in the beginning, like wherever they went, like they were just mobbed by people. Like the, all the, the videos of like, like when they first appeared on the Ed Sullivan show when people were like going bananas, like the girls are screaming and the guys are screaming and like, everyone's like, oh my God, it's the Beatles. And that's, like, that's it. That's insane. Yeah. Like they would literally, they would walk on out on balcony and people would just scream. Mm -hmm. that, that's all they would do is just scream. So, yeah, I, I don't think we have anything to compare it to by today's standards. Like, I know there's a, a legend, and if you haven't heard this, it's a fun one to go down as well, that Avril Lavigne actually died, and the one that we know today is a replacement Avril. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same level. Like, uh, no offense to Avril Lavigne or Lavinites or whatever they, the, her fan club calls themselves, it wouldn't be as impactful. Mm -hmm. Like, when John Lennon died, it was like the end oh, yeah, of the innocence of music, like... Yeah, like they broke into Monday Night Football to announce that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's crazy. It, it was huge. Um, so we just have nothing to relate it to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's one of the things maybe, it's, you know, if they do do did do that good of a job, I can't speak right now. But um, <laughs> I think it would make sense, and we would never know. Like, they obviously did a great job. Like, there's a few things here and there that you can see, that, you know, like you're saying, you're pointing to, like, the, the ears and things that don't move. But it's like they they did what they were supposed to. And I guess like maybe whoever it is on their deathbed will make a confession of who they really are. Or we can take some DNA afterwards and find out. I found an interesting article and there was no way to validate this. And it, it wasn't <laughs> from like a prestigious like newspaper, but uh, recently Ringo Starr made a comment about how he's the last living beetle. Huh. And uh, apparently that was met with a phone call from Paul McCartney immediately Mm. shushing him so maybe that's just another you know the new incarnation of the rumors so could be or could have just been Ringo trying to be pithy and like Paul McCartney's not a real Beatle anymore I don't I don't think he would because he's all about peace and love peace and love I guess that's true but uh yeah so anyhow mm. there you go awesome well good job man so Thank you. uh now let's take a quick commercial break and make some donuts Let's get into Banter with the Beardsleys. Now, what is Banter with the Beardsleys? <laughs> so fucking horrible. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. It's been a while. Uh, so Banter with the Beardsleys is our fun, uh, unscripted, off-the-cuff conversation between the two of us where we take the listener-submitted stories or personal stories or just anything that you ask us. I'm saying stories. I mean questions. Uh, any of those questions that come in, we them down we throw them through a random number generator and we pick out a topic but today's topic came from one of my coworkers, who today asked me if we could cook one meal 
for the rest of our lives, what would we cook? Now, so I think they're they're asking like if you could make a meal, not necessarily eat a meal, like that. What would you eat for the rest of your life? Like if I'm gonna throw down you- in the kitchen. Yeah, like you are like I'm in my element. I'm cooking. I'm cooking like the my favorite meal to cook. What is it? Okay, so there I I, I need I need stipulations here. <laughs> okay. Am I doing the dishes every day? Uh for the sake of cooking the same meal every day, let's say no. Okay. So let's the, say somehow Dobby comes out and one of the house elves <laughs> does all the dishes at night when we're sleeping. Uh I, dude's never getting a sock from me. I'm going to tell you that right now. He's staying in that damn kitchen. Dobby has no best. <laughs> Dobby, a free elf. Um, oh, okay. So now that I know I don't got to clean up after myself, I mean, I'm not going to make a crazy mess. I'm just not doing the dishes every day because it gets tiring. You're going to make sloppy joes because they're so dirty. I, I don't even, you know, I, I'm on the fence <laughs> with sloppy joes. Yeah, I'm not a fan of sloppy joes either. Like, I want to like it. I really do. I just don't. I mean, yeah. they're fine. I just would prefer other things. So, okay. So if I'm cooking one meal forever, is it like a full meal or is it just like a protein? Uh, they didn't specify. Okay. I would say, I would just go like, you're going to just say a meal, whatever, like whatever you, you know, it's, it's your meal. You do what you want with it. Okay. I'm going with, um, so we have a Ninja foodie grill. And uh-huh. yes, I'm looking down on everybody who doesn't have one of those like yeah, air I fryer. I heard your pinky in the air with that one. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's an all-in-one. It's a dehydrator. It's a grill. It's an air fryer. And it does something else I've never... Oh, a roaster. I don't use it to roast. But nice. you can't. I have the option with that thing. Ooh, Peons. So, <laughs> um, so, okay. Here's what I would do. I would do like a nice thick cut like ribeye or or like a t-bone in olive oil with rosemary grill that bad boy up at at a nice like medium medium rare and then as that's grilling up i'd go uh diced up thick cut uh bacon get that going and then once it's almost done throw some fresh asparagus in there so it gets nice and uh grilled up as well cover it in parmesan cheese and a little splash of olive oil for flavor and uh, a baked potato with some, with some butter, salt, pepper, and that's it. I think that'd be my go-to meal. Yeah, that's like my favorite thing to cook, and, and that's what I'm doing. Nice. I like that. That's good. It's a good balance. You got your starches, proteins, you know, you got your greens and bacon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your fats from your cheeses and stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm going with. Oh, and then like the rose, the thick cut, like... A steak with the rosemary and olive oil. It's just this beautiful sensation. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a very aromatic bite. Oh, I, I want that right now. And then if you like, you end it on a high heat. So the outside gets like a good crunch to it, but the inside's still tender and juicy. Nice. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's going to probably be the meal for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm going like with it. that. And then I don't got to clean it, so it's like no no problem. Like, I can knock that out anytime. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And it's also an expensive meal because, like, that, that steak ain't cheap, especially yeah, if you exactly. get, like, a good, like, organic, free-range, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm, I'm assuming that part of the stipulation is I don't got to pay for this meal every single day. <laughs> I would hope, yeah. It's just kind of, you know, <laughs> we have unlimited kitchen supplies and 
yeah, it just magically restocks on its own. I could mm. get down with that. So anyhow, what about you? What are you grilling? What are you cooking? Um, kind of similar. Like I, I don't know. I I really enjoy cooking. Like cooking something I I really love, and I like to build things. Like I like to make it. Like I use a lot of pots, a lot of pans, a lot of utensils. Like I like probably because I watched Iron Chef a lot growing up, and they just have that whole kitchen to just do whatever they want. Like that's how I feel like. And when I'm cooking in my head, I'm an iron chef. I'm waiting for Alton Brown to come ask me what I'm doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think something similar. I like to, to, you know, grill, cook up proteins and stuff like that. Um, I recently started doing like a honey chipotle salmon filet that I, I kind of, I take like the, you know, a can of chipotles and some honey and I blend it up in a, a blender and make a sauce out of it and put it down with some salmon and I get some breadcrumbs and kind of like lightly breadcrumb the outside of it. So then I can, you know, throw it in a, a pan with some pretty high heat to kind of toast up all the, the breadcrumbs and get let a it cook up. And, yeah. And then I pop that in the oven, you know, for a little bit. And then while that's kind of just cooking, getting the temperature, uh, kind of same thing, either I will make some mashed potatoes either by, you know, taking some potatoes, boiling them and mashing them up. Um, or just doing a baked potato. Those are good. Boil too. them, mash them, stick them in a stick them in stew. stew. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> we hate them. Um, but yes, kind of the same thing. I also, it's funny. Like I feel like we're describing the same exact meal. It's almost like we're best friends or something. Right. For um, multiple decades. As, right. Asparagus is also probably my favorite vegetable, uh, just because it, it, as long as it's cooked properly. Like when you overcook it and it just gets all limpy and like it's mushy, it's disgusting. I hate it. Um. But if you can roast or, you know, like kind of even pan fry an asparagus with some, some seasoning, it's like like chef's kiss. That's kind of it. I also like to make brownies and then make a big giant brownie and then throw some ice cream on top for dessert. And that would be it. See, I'm not a big dessert guy. I, I've never been one really for sweets. Um, mm. I get my figure from lack of activity, not from, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not from like munchies and stuff. I, I've never been... I like, I can eat pie. I'll eat apple pie until I die. Like, I'll just sit here and eat myself to death. Like, you know, when you mm. overfeed a goldfish, it'll just keep going until it explodes. <laughs> That's me with uh -huh. pie. Uh, but I don't want to make pie. I just want to eat it. And then if it like if pie. the pie just showed up on my counter on my, you know, my uh -huh. meal thing, I would probably eat, eat, eat a pie a day until nice. I die. You should make a, I'll make you a pecan pie. Pecan pie is amazing. Oh yeah. I love pecan pie. Do you remember when uh, one of our friends that I won't say her name, but I convinced her son the difference between <laughs> pecan pie and pecan pie during Thanksgiving that one year when we were at their house next door? <laughs> For those of you that are listening, I don't know if I told the story, this anecdote on the uh, podcast before, but when you get pecan pie, that's store-bought pie. When you get pecan pie, that's the good homemade stuff. And... Uh, that friend is no longer part of our friend circle, but <laughs> because of uh, that, that moment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a random message a couple of years ago saying that her son still asked if they could have pecan pie for Thanksgiving instead of pecan pie. And that just makes me happy. Uh, I I've realized something over the years and uh, I don't say either. Mm. I don't say, what is it? Pecan or pecan, pecan or pecan. I say pecan. Pecan. It's like a you mix the two together. Yeah, mix the two together. I've always said it that way, and I I don't know how to fix it, and I don't know which way's right. I have three ways to say it. I can't pick one. 
That must be like the organic Costco brand pie. Pecan. Pecan. It's the fancy one. At the Costco. Yeah. Well, I go to Whole Foods. Thank you. Oh, sorry. It's okay. You get your Amazon discount. <laughs> actually, I do. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's actually kind of nice. <laughs> Which is funny because I actually kind of talk about Amazon in my, my script here. Oh, there you go. Speaking yeah, of. Together. Yeah. Look at that segue. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I, I'm, I think we pretty much covered what uh, your coworker was yes. asking. I hope that, that that covered it. And if you listen to this episode, please let me know if uh, that covered it. Yeah. If not, I'm going to fire you. Yeah, you have that power. You can, yeah, I have that power. I will make it happen. I think technically you can sit there and make her listen to the show during her show. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Good point. <laughs> well, um, since that wrapped that up, uh, you are up next, sir. Are you ready? I am ready. So as I said in the beginning of the episode, I'm venturing away from my kind of less murderous and rapey topics of late and uh, getting something a little bit more mysterious and you know, going to be talking about the mystery of what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste. Uh, there's some pretty, there's a lot of stories and legends of what people believe happened that range from the pretty normal and mundane to some pretty bizarre ideas. And I'm hoping by the end of this, we'll, we'll kind of get an idea of what we think happened. So come along, dear listener, if you will, to hear the tale of the Mary Celeste. Now, to fully understand the full story of the Mary Celeste, we have to go back to the beginning of the ship. And that's in 1861. Way back in 1861, a ship was launched in Nova Scotia named the Amazon, which, no, this is not Jeff Jeff Bezos' flagship, but rather a ship that was meant to sail the world. She was just under 100 feet long, just over 45 feet across, and had two masts that could be unfurled up to nine sails. While she was undoubtedly a very beautiful ship, almost immediately she began to encounter a series of unfortunate events. On the maiden voyage, the Amazon left port for nearby five islands in Nova Scotia to grab some timber for cargo and head across the pond to jolly old England. Unfortunately for the ship's captain, Mr. Robert McKellen, he fell ill and the Amazon was forced to return to nearby Spencer's Island where his condition got worse and he actually ended up dying. So Captain McKellen's second-in-command, a man named John Nutting Parker, took over as captain and commanded the ship as she sailed across the ocean. However, shortly after leaving the waters off the coast of Canada, the Amazon collided with a fishing vessel off the coast of Eastport, Maine, and sunk the fishing vessel. Which, all right, two strange incidents, not really much to worry about. The captain was pretty new. I guess these things happen. Let's get this cargo to London and see how the ship fares, right? Well, thankfully for the crew and cargo, the Amazon made it to London and safely delivered its cargo. Upon leaving London, however, the ship collided with another small ship called a brig in the English Channel and ended up sinking the brig. Like any good North American crew, I'm sure they exchanged insurance information and then sped off to never be heard from again. John Parker would continue to captain the Amazon for almost two years when he was succeeded by a man named William, William Thompson who would take her on a series of successful trips from the West Indies to France and back several times. A member of the Amazon's crew was even quoted as saying, quote, we went to the West Indies, England, and the Mediterranean, what we call the foreign trade, and not a thing unusual happened. Which, you know, he just had to open his big stupid mouth, didn't he? Of course he did, because in October of 1867, the Amazon was pushed ashore in a storm and wrecked on the shore, and she was left there abandoned. The Amazon was eventually recovered and sold to an American businessman named Richard Haynes, who spent $1,750 to buy the boat. In today's day, that was almost $33,000, 
for a wreck. He then spent another $8,825 to restore it. Again, in today's money, that's almost $165,000. And having spent that much money, Mr. Richard Haynes decided it was also time for a new title. So he christened himself Captain Richard Haynes and renamed the boat the Mary Celeste. Unfortunately for Captain Haynes, all that money he poured into the boat didn't sit well with his creditors because he wasn't a very good captain and wasn't unable, wasn't able to pay back the money. So they impounded the boat. They seized it, and then they eventually sold it off to a New York consortium to settle his debts. Over the course of the next four years, the Mary Celeste would be retrofitted and upgraded to the point where the consortium's main shareholder was able to convince another man to share the profits and become captain of the ship. That man was named Mr. Benjamin Briggs, and he took over as captain of the vessel in October of 1872. Captain Briggs was a man who was born to be on the sea by all accounts. He was one of five sons born to a ship's captain in Wareham, Massachusetts in 1835. By 1862, he had married his cousin, Sarah, and in 1865, they had a son named Arthur to be followed five years later by daughter, Sophia. Briggs was successful in his merchant career and was considered giving up sailing when the opportunity to buy into the shares of the Mary Celeste presented itself. He was so excited by this that Briggs insisted on taking the ship out on her first official voyage as the Mary Celeste. Instead of doing a quick run to the training port and back, Briggs decided to go, go big or go home and take her all the way to Genoa, Italy. Not only that, but he said, yeah, what the heck? I'm going to bring my wife and two-year-old daughter on the cruise. What could possibly go wrong? By the way, for the record, that's not an actual quote. He never said that. That's just me interjecting my own thoughts on the situation. So on October 20th, 1872, Captain Briggs arrived at Pier 50 in New York City to supervise the loading of 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol. That's alcohol used for cleaning or fuel and should not be drunk. His wife, Sarah, and daughter, Sophia, arrived a few days later, but their son, Arthur, was left with his grandma for some unknown reason. The weather was rough, so the departure was delayed until clear skies, but this gave Sarah an opportunity to write her mother-in-law, and in that letter, she wrote, quote, Tell Arthur I will make great dependence on the letters I shall get from him, and I will try to remember anything that happens on the voyage, which he would be pleased to hear. According to one report, which was given about 50 years after the fact, Captain Briggs had dinner before departing with a man named David Morehouse, who was the captain of another ship named the De Gratia. The two men supposedly knew each other, and the men were good friends. Morehouse and his ship, the De Gratia, were scheduled to leave about a week after the Mary Celeste and were headed in the same general direction. Kind of a thing of foreboding here. On Tuesday, November 5th, the Mary Celeste set sail for, from New York with Captain Briggs at the helm, along with his wife, his young daughter, and a crew of eight very experienced men. Unfortunately for the souls aboard the Mary Celeste, it was the last time anyone would see them alive. On Wednesday, December 4th, 1872, Captain Morehouse of the De Gratia was sailing his vessel off the coast of Portugal when a member of his crew alerted him to another ship sailing towards him. Morehouse and the men began frantically trying to signal the crew of the ship, but as they got closer, they realized that there was no crew to signal. Morehouse also noted that the sails of the ship had, quote, an odd set to them. So he ordered two members of his crew to board the ship. The men discovered that on the ship was named the Mary Celeste on the side of the boat, and the ship appeared to be deserted. They also noted that the sails were only partially set, most were in pretty poor condition, and a lot of the lines used to tie the sails were damaged and hanging over the sides. As they continued to investigate the derelict ship, 
they discovered that the main hatch to the lower part of the ship was secured and in the shut position, but two smaller hatches on the sides of the boat were open. The only lifeboat on the ship was missing, and strangely, the ship's compass housing had been shifted around and the glass covering it was shattered. While they climbed into the hold of the ship, they discovered about three and a half feet of water, which was a lot of water, but not really enough to endanger the boat from sinking. When the two men got into the living areas of the Mary Celeste, they noted that the logbook was updated nine days before on the 25th of November, and though although everything was wet, the quarters were pretty tidy. They surmised that something went wrong and the crew had to abandon ship via the lifeboat. They then returned to the De Gratia to inform Captain Morehouse of the condition of the ship. Now, while I'm sure Captain Morehouse is pretty upset that his friend is missing, he was also thinking more about that money, honey. Because you see, according to maritime law, a ship can receive a pretty hefty amount of money for pulling in a derelict ship and towing it to safety. So Captain Morehouse divided his crew equally and they, they brought the Mary Celeste to the nearest large port, which is in Gibraltar, on December 12th. While in Gibraltar, Captain Morehouse was excited for a pretty quick and bountiful judgment. So much, so much so that he sent his entire crew off with the De Gratia to deliver their cargo and return to him later after he had his money. Unfortunately for Morehouse, the hearing to determine the cause of the derelict ship was being held by a man named Frederick Sully Flood. Flood had been described by historians as, quote, a man whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ, end quote. The hearing began on December 17th, and the men who investigated the Mary Celeste were called to give their testimony. After hearing this information, Flood decided that the ship needed to be investigated more thoroughly. An investigation was conducted, and it was discovered that there were several large gashes on the side of the ship, and dark stains were found in several areas that they, they possibly thought was blood. They also determined that there was a vial of sewing machine oil that was upright and undisturbed, which led them to believe that the ship did not experience any rough weather, which to me that seems kind of weird logic because I'm pretty sure if they're like traveling from where they found the boat to Gibraltar and the vial fell over, someone's like, oh, that fell over. Let me pick it up. Um, but I'm not a maritime investigator, so what do I know? Anywho, after almost a month of investigating, Flood and his team determined that the cause of the ship being abandoned was not because of any natural occurrence and that they believed that there was foul play involved. Flood concluded, without any evidence, that the crew had decided to drink the denatured alcohol and, either being drunk or poisoned, decided to murder the captain and his family, then gash up the ship to make it look like pirates, and then leave the ship on the lifeboat. The only other explanation Flood could come up with was that Morehouse and the, tr the crew of the De Gratia were to blame because Flood could not believe that the ship was just drifting in the ocean for nine days, and then they just found them. But lacking any evidence to that, Flood concluded the ship had been mutinied. When the other main owner of the ship arrived in Gibraltar to figure out what the heck happened, he testified to the high character of not only Captain Briggs, but that of the extremely experienced crew. He stated that there was no way that they would abandon ship unless it was extreme circumstances. Furthermore, another investigation was commissioned by a U.S. diplomat in Gibraltar who used actual naval investigators to determine what the marks on the side of the ship were, and they found out that they're not man-made and they were most likely caused from the ship drifting in the ocean, enlisting back and forth, hitting waves and debris in the ocean. Faced with this information, Flood had no choice but to release the ship, and it sailed back to America. As for Captain Morehouse and his bounty of wealth, well, he didn't really get what he wanted. After almost four months since he entered Gibraltar, he received one-fifth the total amount of the estimated cost of the ship and cargo, 
And the going rate at the time was supposed to be about four-fifths of the value, so he kind of got screwed. Furthermore, when giving this settlements, the court condemned Morehouse, saying that he was only there trying to make money, and they believed he was partially to blame. One official was quoted as saying to Morehouse that he would be, quote, under suspicion of the court of public opinion forever. So what really happened to the Mary Celeste? Why would such an experienced captain and an experienced crew just suddenly abandon ship? At the time, the most likely cause was foul play. Even up until the 1930s, there was suspicion that Captain Morehouse was laying in wait and ambushed the Mary Celeste, which doesn't really make sense because they were supposedly friends and Morehouse left a week after him and he had a slower ship. So I don't know how he could have caught up to him and laid in wait. Uh, so other theories suggest that it was all a scheme to make money set up by Morehouse and Briggs the night before they departed, which also kind of seems plausible considering Briggs and the crew could sail anywhere they wanted on the coast of Western Europe and leave Morehouse to reap rewards and then meet up with them later. Proponents of this point to the rarity of bringing your wife and small child on board as evidence that they wanted to start a new life, which if this story does hold weight, it means that you know Briggs and his wife are pretty heartless because they just left their five-year-old son in America. Some scientists and oceanographers say that they believe a natural disaster occurred, such as like a water spout, which is just a large tornado on the water, and they think it could have blown them around and caused them to abandon the ship. This also seems plausible because if the storm was so, was so severe that it made them abandon ship, it would make sense why the ship was relatively undamaged. But with such an experienced crew, if it was so severe, it probably would have caused damage to the ship. So it's kind of weird. It's, that one's like an iffy one to me. On the not-so-plausible theories, many men have come forward after the Mary Celeste returned to America claiming to have been members of the crew and were the lone survivors. They would tell tall tales such as how the whole crew was on a makeshift raft to watch a swimming contest in the ocean for some reason, but then the raft suddenly collapsed and the whole crew was either drowned or eaten by sharks. Or, while on the trip, the crew of the Mary Celeste found an abandoned ship that was full of gold, so they stole it, leaving one lone crew member to survive in the open waters for failing to go along with their plan. Even more bizarre were stories that the whole crew was snatched off the deck by a large octopus or squid. And even stranger, that aliens came, abducted the crew, and this is why the boat was so well-preserved. One thing I can tell you, dear readers, is that if you had heard the tale of the Mary Celeste, you have probably heard this piece of information I'm going to tell you. That when the crew of the De Gratia first investigated the drifting ship, they found the logbook had been updated the same day or even the night before, and that there was food in the galley half-eaten, some, sometimes still slightly warm. And if you look it up, you can find this information out there. It's on the internet. But contrary to everything that you're reading on the internet being true, this is not true. Unfortunately, we have writers and people, you know, who are trying to sell written word as their goods to blame for this. One of our local newspapers here in Southern California actually ran an article about the ship. In 1884, the Los Angeles Times wrote of the ship, quote, every sail was set, the tiller was lashed flat, fast, not a rope was out of place, the fire was burning in the galley, the dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold, in the log written up, up to the hour of her discovery. We also can thank Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote a short story about what he called the Marie Celeste and how the crew was attacked and killed by a rogue crew, mem crew member. And this story was so well-preserved and believed for decades because people actually thought when you talked about the Marie Celeste, they would correct and say, no, it's the Marie Celeste. So what really happened? Well, to be honest, we don't know. 
The most plausible theory comes from a actually pretty modern investigation. In 2006, a team from a local news team partnered up with members of the University College in London to try to explain what they call the explosion theory. This theory stated that the denatured alcohol somehow exploded and this caused the captain and crew to abandon ship. At the time, this theory was pushed away because, well, an explosion tends to have explodey stuff like fire and ashes and soot that leaves a pretty strong evidence of what happened. The team built a replica of the ship and used modern versions of the denatured alcohol inside some paper cartons to represent the numerous barrels. They then let the barrels on fire and observed. Not surprisingly, the barrels exploded. <laughs> there was a massive ball of flame. But, which there's always a but, but after all the ball of flames subsided, instead of a lingering fire and brimstone, there was just kind of a blast of air. To quote the lead chemist, Dr. Andrea Sella, quote, what we created was a pressure wave type of explosion. There was a spectacular wave of flame, but behind it was relatively cool air. No soot was left behind, and there was no burning or scorching. Using this information, it's speculated that there may have been a leak or maybe just two barrels rubbing too closely together during the voyage, and the friction caused a spark, which resulted in an explosion. This, in turn, was probably enough for Captain Briggs to at least order a temporary abandoning of the ship using the lifeboat. To once again quote Dr. Sella, it is the most compelling explanation we have. Of all those suggested, it fits the facts best and explains why they were so keen to get off the ship. Now, sadly, if this was the case, it means that some other tragedy must have happened because if they did temporarily leave the ship to let it air out, then somehow the lifeboat drifted away from the Mary Celeste and there's some other way that caused the main ship and lifeboat to drift further and further away. Now, ultimately, we will never know. The fate of the crew is and always will be a mystery. Oh, and what of the ship, you may ask? Well, the Mary Celeste made it back to America and got a new captain. The new captain was apparently a shady McShaderton, as he decided that it was time to make some money. But instead of working hard, he conspired with other ship captains to load the Mary Celeste with worthless cargo and then falsify the manifest, which allowed them to insure the ship for almost $900,000 in today's money. They then sailed to the coast of Haiti and intentionally wrecked the ship on very well-known and documented coral reefs. They then paid a local savager to tow the remains to port where they filed an insurance claim. When the insurance investigators started the investigation, they discovered that the cargo was pretty worthless and there was nowhere near the amount it was insured for. So instead of getting the insurance money, the captain got a trial for insurance fraud. Eventually, a lot of back and forth negotiations resulted in the court agreeing to drop the charges in exchange for the captain forfeiting all claims of insurance and title. The captain agreed, but his reputation was damaged so badly that he would die penniless and in poverty three months later. Another conspirator went insane while the third committed suicide. One of the investigators said of the men, quote, If the court of man could not punish these men, then the curse that had deviled the ship since her first skipper, Robert McKellen, had died on her maiden voyage was able to reach beyond the vessel's watery grave and exact its own terrible retribution. And that, my bearded friends, is the story of the Mary Celeste. That's a crazy story. Yeah. And, like, it's just sad that we'll never really know what mm -hmm. happened to them. Yeah, that's the. I think that's, like, the worst part. And, like, trying to imagine, like, in their shoes, like, okay, say the explosion theory was, like, the, bit, the you know, the most plausible that, like, okay, let's get on a lifeboat, let's wait for the ship to air out. And then somehow, like, your tow line or the wind shifts and the big ship starts sailing away. Like, you can only row so fast, you know? Like, you're going to be paddling so quickly back towards this boat, and the boat's just going to be getting further and further away from you. Like, that's got to be a terrible feeling. 
Yeah, and then you're not going it, to... It's a very slow, painful death. Yeah. Being, being lost at sea like that. Like, mm-hmm. you start uh, hallucinating, you start drinking the salt water, you go crazy, yep. the sun. Ugh. Yeah, it's all bad. It's It's just terrible. And it sucks that, like, you know, there's no way to know. And even, like, you know, the guy that was... Granted, he, you know, the Captain Morehouse, like, he took the ship, like, I'm going to, you know, at least salvage the ship, get some money out of it. Like, he immediately just, they they turned in the suspicion of him thinking he did something bad. And, you know, suppo- allegedly they were friends, and it's like, that'd be kind of crappy. Like, me and you, like, having dinner and then sailing out to sea and then me finding your boat. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to bring the boat back in. And they're like, you killed him. Like, what the hell? Like, Well, I mean, I'm also going to write in my captain's lock that you probably killed me. Right. (laughs) If I don't make it, the ship behind me was to blame. I'm going to be like, I'm not saying it was him, but it was probably him. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's, and it's one of those like things that that just, I'm not going to say the boat was cursed, but you know, there's from the beginning, there was bad stuff happening. Right. And there's a, an old sea saying like, once the sea marks you, it's your, you belong to the sea. And Mm. so if that ship, from the get-go if it started having problems like the old sea tales from it it's it's mm. cursed it's it's over yeah it's it's crazy so awesome job tonight man thank you if somebody wanted to write in and give us a question to ask each other or have a, a topic for banter with the beards lease or just wants to say hello where and how can they do that they can do that by reaching out to us at any of our social medias our instagram is at bearded things our at bearded things pod our Facebook is facebook.com slash bearded things. We have a really cool Facebook friends group, which is the bearded things, bearded friends group. You can also reach out to our YouTube, which is at bearded things pod and our Twitter is at bearded things. You can also email us, contact us at bearded things, or visit our website, which is bearded things.com there on that, that website. There's a contact us page, which you can fill out and it comes directly to us. We love hearing from you, so please don't hesitate to reach out. Give us those last-minute questions if you got them, or just come say hi. We love talking to people, so don't be shy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that'll just about do it for us this week. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.